this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Mary Catherine Nagel about her play Sovereignty, published by Northwestern University Press. Mary, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, no problem. Uh, So you have a very interesting career in that you are both an attorney who specializes in issues related to uh, Native American sovereignty, and you're also a playwright whose plays have been you know, produced at some of the most uh, prestigious theaters in the country. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in theater and kind of how you charted this, uh, this double path? Well, you know, I was interested in theater as a very young child and did plays in school and high school and college and wrote my first play in college as an undergrad student. And I always wanted to go to law school. So I, um, you know, felt like perhaps there was a conflict between those two and thought I couldn't do them both and ended up choosing law school over any kind of MFA program. But while I was a law school student at Tulane University in um, New Orleans, I wrote three plays, one each year that I was in law school and performed them with my fellow students and faculty at the law school. So I sort of uh, have always been able to combine both in in a way that's been very exciting. And I've always seen them as very related careers. Yeah, I recently interviewed somebody who wrote a book that was largely about the kind of theatricality of the courtroom. So I wonder if that was a connection uh, as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the courtroom is a, is, a, is a place of theater, right? It's storytelling. And the best lawyers are the best storytellers. And if you don't know how to tell a compelling story as a lawyer, you, you will lose your case. Um, so it's, you know, the two skills go hand in hand. That's fascinating. Um, so you're also a member of the Cherokee Nation. Is that right? Uh, yes, I am. W- were you influenced at all by kind of traditional Cherokee performing art styles or or was, was your early exposure pretty much kind of what we'd think of as, as traditional Western theater? Pretty much traditional Western theater. I mean, Cherokees, like many tribal nations, have... Um, a long history of oral storytelling and uh, and performance, you know, sort of in a non-traditional, I mean, like not in the formal way that you would study when you go to a major university in the United States to get your MFA, but we've always been storytellers. We've always been theater makers. It's not um, a new art form for us, that's for sure. 
And I wonder for this play in particular, this is a play that takes place in multiple timelines at the same time. And one of them is kind of about the period of the uh, kind of Trail of Tears and and, associ- and the, well, I guess it's kind of starts out a little bit before that. Um, was that kind of part of, uh, part of the influence of this play is that idea of having a, an oral storytelling culture that's passing down the stories of your people? I mean, you know, most of what the play shares are the stories that my grandmother told me as a child. Now, I went and did my own background research, of course, to validate a lot of that and build upon it. But yeah, most most of it is uh, an oral history that I learned as a child. That's so interesting. Um, and, and you've you've continued to be involved in in both of these uh, fields, performing arts and the law, at the same time. Um, you were the executive director of the Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program. Can you talk a, a bit about what that was like? Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> I'm very, uh, very blessed that Ned Blackhawk had the vision. Uh, he's the professor there, a tenured history professor, um, you know, at, at Yale. And uh, you might think it's funny that a, a history professor would be interested in creating a, a performing arts program. But we did one of my plays there at Yale Law School inside the law school, sponsored by the law school. And uh, Madeline Sayet directed it. And uh, it's called Sliver of a Full Moon. And it's a play about the Violence Against Women Act, which also features in uh, sovereignty. The difference between sovereignty and Sliver of a Full Moon is that Sliver of a Full Moon puts actual survivors on stage to share their stories with professional actors that sort of are almost what I like to call the like the band, like the backup um, for the storytelling. And um, that went over really well and was very impactful. And, um, you know, I think that um, he afterwards, he said, you know, this, this, um, for my students, for my native students at Yale, this is the first time they've ever seen native stories told on stage. And they've ever seen native performing artists given a sense of legitimacy. And in fact, it was not too long after that, that Yale Rep did perform and produce a play that had Red Face in it, which many most theaters in the United States have done multiple plays with Red Face. And that was really damaging to the Native students. And so they're sort of in this environment where they're not getting to see any Native artists humanized on stage, but they are seeing non-Native artists dehumanize them. And he said, I just want to do whatever I can to get a performing arts program started here at the university. And would you be the executive director of it? And I just laughed at him. I was like, would I be the executive director of Yale Indigenous Performing Arts Program? I was like, you know, if that if that comes to fruition, yes. And actually, Yale called me like a month later and asked for my resume. And I was shocked. I, but he, yeah, he got the dean to approve it. And they created the program. And, um, you know, it's been going for five years now. I was the inaugural director for four years. And then about a year ago, turned over the leadership to the next director, Madeline Sayet, who's been doing amazing things with the program. And, and what kind of work did you do through that program? Like what kind of um, you know, performances would you, did, you, did you bring to the campus? We have, we have brought so many incredible performances. We've brought Delana Studi to do her one-woman play in So We Walked, which is one of the best pieces of American theater I've ever seen in my life. Uh, we've brought Joy Harjo to do performances from her one-woman show. We've brought Spider-Woman Theater to do workshops with students. We've also, every year, done a Native um, youth playwriting contest, so 25 and younger, 
for younger Native writers and had incredible playwrights come and workshop their plays like Tara Moses, Carolyn Dunn, Vera Bedard, Reed Bobroff. Um, these are, you know, just wonderful professional Native artists, and it's been really amazing to share them with the rest of the Yale community. Yeah, from my kind of outsider's perspective as a non-Native theater artist, it really seems like there's kind of something of a, of a renaissance in uh, Native theater in the last, uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. Would you say that seems to be true to you? I mean, we've always had Native theater artists at every level, but we just haven't had an American theater that accepted us. Mm. And what's incredible is now we're finally ex- – we're there, not every theater has accepted us. The majority of theaters still haven't produced their first Native play in the history of their theater. But there are theaters like Arena Stage or the Oregon Shakespeare Festival or Yale Rep, right, that have now said, hey, why don't we let a Native Native artist have a seat at this table too? It's time to not exclude them anymore, yeah. which has been phenomenal to see. Yeah, Playwrights Horizons also had a, had a Larissa Fasthorst's play, yeah, which is a, a wonderful piece. Um, you mentioned Arena Stage, uh, which is maybe a good place to transition into talking about this play itself, uh, given that this play premiered at Arena Stage, which is in D.C., uh, one of the most important uh, regional theaters in the country. Uh, how did that collaboration come about? Um, you know, Molly Smith uh, reached out to me in 2015, actually, and and said, hey, Mary Catherine, we'd like to commission you, which was pretty amazing. It was my very first commission ever. And uh, that opened so many doors for other commissions and, and other opportunities because theater is sort of a weird place where until you've had a commission, you know, it's just other, it's just you're sort of every options are closed. And then once one theater recognizes you, others get in line, you know? Yeah. It's a very small world. I, I had a playwriting professor in college who described it as like when you're outside of the theater world, you think it's like thousands and thousands of people. And then when you make it through that door, you realize it's like nine people who are making all of the decisions. Yeah, right. Um, and then without spoiling too much of the plot, could you give your audiences, uh, could give our audiences a sense of kind of what this play is about, what the historical background of the play is? Um. Yeah, so the play really goes back and forth between two time periods, and it um, shows us today in Cherokee Nation, where Cherokee Nation has implemented the restored tribal criminal criminal jurisdiction in VAWA and criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians for domestic violence crimes, and then goes back and forth between that the today's time period. And the time period in the 1820s and 30s when Georgia was doing everything it could to exercise jurisdiction over Cherokee lands in an effort to remove Cherokee Nation from our sovereign territory. And uh, Georgia was passing all kinds of laws like forbade our government to function on our sovereign land, which, of course, is such an illegitimate law. But uh, it all kind of came to a head when Georgia passed a law saying, all right, no American citizen can set foot on Cherokee Nation's land without the approval of the Georgia governor. And to do so, the governor would make the American citizen, before entering Cherokee land, sign this document saying they pledge allegiance to the Georgia governor and not the Cherokee Nation's government. And a reverend, a missionary of all sorts, um, refused to sign that, uh, Reverend Rooster. And so he was arrested by Georgia and, um, and, and sent to a hard labor camp. And the case went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. Cherokee Nation helps Samuel Wooster, got him an attorney. He actually ended up being represented by uh, William Wirt, the former attorney general under John Adams. And 
it was very much Cherokee Nation's case. Unfortunately, you know, it kind of had to be presented through the vehicle of a white man. But, um, you know, Cherokee Nation was funding it, paying for it, coming up with the arguments. My great, great, great grandfather was helping to draft the briefs. He was actually one of the very first Native attorneys in the history of the United States. And, of course, even though he had studied law and, you know, understood it and could write briefs, he couldn't actually represent his nation in the Supreme Court because at that point in federal and state courts, Natives were – by race, according to their race, not allowed to uh, argue for themselves in court. Uh, they couldn't serve on juries and they couldn't um, uh, serve as witnesses in a court of law. So um, same as black folks, right? So, uh, you know, very discriminatory times. And uh, this case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the question, the legal question for the court was, um, can Georgia exercise criminal jurisdiction over American citizens on Cherokee Nation's lands. And the Supreme Court said no. In fact, only Cherokee Nation is the only sovereign that can exercise jurisdiction on Cherokee Nation's lands. It's a huge, huge, huge victory. Um, of course, Andrew Jackson... Kind of shocking victory for the time. Absolutely. And, and um, Andrew Jackson refused to enforce it. And so Georgia refused to obey. It's kind of like the same way... Uh, you know, after Brown v. Board of Education, right? You've got governors in the South, and you've got the famous incident in Little Rock when Eisenhower sent the National Guard, right? Well, same thing, Andrew Jackson, but Andrew Jackson didn't send the National Guard, right? So Georgia, just like Arkansas, refused to obey the Supreme Court's decision. But Andrew Jackson, instead of sending the National Guard, basically told my great-great-grandfather to his face, John Marshall has made his decision, referring to the chief justice, let him enforce it. And it was basically a statement of, you know, you can try to stay in your ancestral homeland and govern your sovereign territory like you have since time immemorial, but I'm just going to sit back and watch Georgia kill you. And I don't care. And that was kind of Andrew Jackson's message. Because the Supreme Court doesn't have any like independent enforcement mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, right. Under our constitution, the Supreme Court can't send out you know, police force to enforce its decisions. Um, and it, it, I get that sense, you know, that the, some of this story is is known to people in general, may, probably not in the, the, the detail that you've just laid it out. But, you know, we're generally aware that the Cherokee were removed from their ancestral lands, uh, as, as were many tribes. So what did you feel like audiences needed to know about these events that they didn't already know? I hope they come away understanding that our governments are just as legitimate as, as theirs. Um, just because we're native doesn't mean we're racially inferior, even though the Supreme court still to this day has precedent on the books. It hasn't overturned saying that we're racially inferior. We're not. And our governments are not. And there are still people, for instance, in Senator Cornyn's office today, arguing that our tribal nations shouldn't be able to exercise their inherent jurisdiction over our lands because we're incapable of fairly adjudicating the rights of non-Indian American citizens. There's no track record of that, right? And I could, of course, come up with a long track record of state courts putting people of color to death who didn't commit the crimes they were charged with. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of examples. All you need to do is go on Netflix and watch all the documentaries of all the, you know, black people that have been accused of crimes they never committed that are exonerated now. And, and of course, no one is questioning whether or not state courts should be able to maintain their jurisdiction um, 
over people of color, even though they have proven they are prejudiced against people of color. And yet here we are as tribal nations and tribal governments and people like Senator Cornyn just operate from a like a, an assumption that they think is very legitimate that our tribal governments, because we're native, cannot fairly adjudicate the rights of non-natives. It's, it's very offensive and problematic, but we're, we're fighting it today. And there's no justification for that belief other than just bald-faced racism, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I just wanted to underline that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in the play, there's a character named Sarah who, you know, I, I don't want to uh, make too much of a leap here, but definitely, sh- shall we say, shares some attributes with you uh, in that she's she's also a lawyer who's fighting for the rights of the Cherokee people, also descended from some of the characters in the play that you're descended from. Um, did you kind of draw from from just your kind of basic biographical facts in creating the character of Sarah, or does she is she uh, in in terms of personality similar to you as well? She is similar to me in terms of personality. I mean, you write what you know, right? And so, um, you know, uh, so you write what you know. But um, she's definitely not me. It's definitely not autobiographical. I've you know, never worked directly in the Cherokee Nation Attorney General's office, although I'd be very honored to. That's that's never a role that I've had. And, um, you know, I don't have a brother named Wadey, uh, who's a tribal law enforcement. I don't even have a brother, actually, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, very – so there's a lot in our lives that are very different. She went to Yale Law School. I didn't, you know. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, yes. I mean, I think that – her drive to um, fight for the sovereignty that her grandfathers fought for and gave their lives for is a drive that I have and a, and a drive, something that drives me every day in the work that I do. And just to kind of underline how truly Kafka-esque this legal situation is, you have early in the play, there's a, a scene where a drunk white man attacks a Cherokee cop in the presence of a white cop, uh, I think an Oklahoma cop, and uh, both of them realize that they that neither of them can arrest the man, and the tribal policeman can't because the man is in Cherokee, and the white cop can't because the attack happened on Cherokee land. So they, they realize that unless someone from the FBI shows up in the room, nobody can arrest this, this man. So what is the, what's the legal background of that, you know, really bizarre legal limbo? It's a long story, but that's why I think it's so important in my play. I try to point out, you know, in the 1830s, when Cherokee Nation opened the doors to its Supreme Court 20 years before the state of Georgia even had one. So people think, oh, tribes, I, I don't know, they have all these false notions of what tribes are and what tribal governments have been and are today. And uh, I always want to point out, you know, we've been operating our juris- you know, our governments and uh, jurisdiction since time memorial. And we had um, laws on the books that allowed for the prosecution of any person who came onto Cherokee Nation lands and raped a Cherokee woman in the 1830s, regardless of citizenship. It didn't matter if you were a citizen of France, China, the United States, Cherokee Nation, the state of Georgia, whatever. You came onto Cherokee lands. If you raped someone, you'd be arrested and prosecuted by Cherokee Nation. Now, fast forward to 1978. And the United States Supreme Court in a case uh, named Oliphant, where actually a non-Indian went on to the Suquamish Indian Tribes Reservation, got really drunk and physically assaulted a tribal law enforcement officer, 
uh, and was arrested for assaulting the tribal law enforcement officer in a very drunken state, um, in charged with crimes, because that's a crime, uh, challenged his um, imprisonment and arrest, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And his argument, all of Fon's argument was, hey, I'm non-Indian, so tribes don't have jurisdiction over Indian or non-Indians, because non-Indians, we're American citizens, we have all these constitutional rights, and we have the right to be free from tribal jurisdiction and prosecution. And Chief Justice Rehnquist and the Supreme Court agreed. And they wrote all of Fon and took away tribes' criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. And it's a very problematic case. And, and uh, in fact, one of the cases the Supreme Court cited in Oliphant as justification for eliminating tribal criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians was the court's 1823 decision, wherein the court decided that tribal nations couldn't uh, claim legal title to their own lands because they're racially and inferior as a race. And the Supreme Court cited that case and said, look, if, if tribes can't claim legal title to their lands, they obviously can't exercise criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. It's a very problematic case. And didn't cite the case where they said, where the, that you talked about earlier, uh, the Marshall case. Well, I think they did cite that. I'd, I'd actually have to go back and look, um, but they dismissed it as not relevant. Yeah. Because they were being outcome determinative, as the Supreme Court usually is, which, again, is why McGirt is such a huge victory. Um, it's, you know, it hasn't really been uh, common. <laughs> you know, you can find exceptions here and there, right? But for the most part, yeah, when cases go up to the Supreme Court, tribal nations lose because the Supreme Court has been outcome determinative. Instead of applying the law, the law they've sort of sought the route where the tribe loses and the non-Indian wins. And that's been a major pattern in history that's been problematic for a long time. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see... We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. That's so interesting to hear you say that as, as a lawyer. I mean, so you're, you're somebody who has devoted your life to practicing the, the, the craft of the law at the same time recognizing that the law is, you know, at its base prejudiced against the kind of arguments that you're trying to make. So how do you negotiate that tension? Well, it's it's challenging because um, as a native attorney, you're you're working in a colonial framework. And, you know, I know a lot of natives who say, why do you even recognize the authority of the Supreme Court? That's a colonial government. Well, you know, and I, and I really appreciate those folks because I think we need to be reminded of that. You know, that is true. But I'm also very realistic and it is 2020 and, you know. Um, you know, uh, the fight that Tecumseh wanted to fight and win was, is, I don't know how much of a reality that is today. And I, you know, don't, I think most of us are looking forward to a day when we can truly live peacefully with our, with the other sovereigns within the United States. And in a way where we all respect each other, we're not trying to take anyone out. We're not trying to destroy anyone. We just want to be respected in the same way that we respect other sovereigns. And that's hard to do when, um, you know, you've got a colonial legal framework that says your people are racially inferior um, people, and therefore you your government can't protect you in your own home from 
the people who are superior to you when they come into your home and rape or kill you. <laughs> it's very problematic, but that is the legal framework we live in. Now, we're also trying to work to change that in Congress. So we've got, you know, this last year we were working to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act and, um, you know, achieve additional restoration of tribal criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians for some of these really, really violent crimes. Um, and that's, that's an ongoing effort for sure. And the Violence Against Women Act, what's unique about that act in terms of these questions of tribal sovereignty? Well, you know, when Obama signed it into law, um, you know, uh, in 2013, on March 7th, 2013, that was one of the first times and only times in U.S. history I think we've ever heard a United States president say, I am restoring the inherent sovereignty of tribal nations. So, um, which is pretty amazing. And I mean, I remember sitting there watching him sign it into law and it was uh, just really, really impactful and phenomenal to see. And I think that, um, I think we're living in a time where, you know, for all the generations from 1492 until now, all of those generations pretty much only lost and survived. And I have to brag, my fiance, who I love dearly, I think has one of the most amazing op-eds I've ever read in my life in the Washington Post today about the significance of the McGurk case. He is the ambassador for the Muscogee Creek Nation. And he wrote about sort of this idea, right, of for generations, everyone that's come before us has lost, but they never gave up. We now get to be the generation where that turns around. And for and for the first time in U.S. history, because we, we're, you know, we predate U.S. history, but for the first time in U.S. history, it's not a loss, it's a restoration. And that's pretty phenomenal for, for us, for Native people. Yeah, could you talk a little bit more about that case? I mean, I, I, I had I've done a bit of reading, you know, on NPR and that sort of thing about this uh, this recent Supreme Court case, and I, I am not quite sure I understand the full implications of it. So, could you could you talk a little bit about, you know, would would your play be a different play if it were written today than it was when it was written uh, a couple of years ago? Would it be a different play today? Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think. Yes, it's going to always be a different play based on where we are in the spectrum and the continuum of our evolving story and history and future together. You know, I wrote this play in 2015, uh, well before Trump ever announced he was running for president. And when we played, when it was produced at Arena Stage in January of 2018, which was one year into Trump's presidency, um, there are a couple lines in there. That, like, again, when I wrote them, had no idea Trump would even run for president, let alone win. That sounded like I wrote them specifically aimed at Trump. And the audience would just die laughing because they thought it was a political comment on President Trump. And it, I didn't intend for it to be, but it's fun. It's What are those lines? Yeah, what are the lines you're referring to? I'm curious. Um, you know, I'd have to open up the script. Uh, but, like, one of the lines is there's this moment in towards the end of the second half where, uh, or is it the end of the, I think it's the end of the first act actually. And the character, uh, Jim Ross in the present day is talking to Sarah and he's like, okay, we got to go to president. We got to go to DC. Um, you know, we got to meet with the president and talk about this. Cause there's always, there's always been this conversation in the political world of like, will, you know, will the federal government try to take away the jurisdiction it just restored? I mean, tribes are afraid of that. Right. And again, I wrote this in 2015 
not knowing who the next president would be. And, but, um, you know, uh, Jim Ross says, we got to go meet with the president. And Sarah says something like, why? And of course the dialogue's way better how I actually wrote it in the play. But he says, well, the president, um, you know, is thinking about taking away the jurisdiction that VAWA restored. And, and she says something, Sarah says something to the effect of, but he's the president. He can't, you know, he can't undo an act of Congress by himself. Like Congress passed VAWA. He can't change that. And everyone would just laugh because I guess the implicate, you know, like all this, all these political battles between Congress and, uh, you know, the legislative branch of the government and the executive during Trump's presidency. Well, I think this sort of underscores a really interesting point, which is that I feel like for a lot of people who oppose Trump, uh, we want to think about it as, you know, Trump is this aberration, this kind of ugly stain on our history. But what you're saying is almost, you know, that could be any president, like any of the presidents that we've had in, in the past, you know, a couple of hundred years, uh, you know, could somebody would maybe fear that they would try to trample on uh, native sovereignty. Absolutely. And I think that that um, is actually the truth because, I mean, Andrew Jackson's a great example, but he's not the only one. You know, I mean, President Lincoln ordered the largest uh, mass in, uh, assassination um, ever in the history of the United States. And that was against, you know, uh, the Dakota and where he executed, I think, um, 64 Dakota men at once, um, you know, around the same time as the Emancipation Proclamation. But people don't talk about that. Right. And I know for Dakota people like that is that is their Andrew Jackson. Right. I mean, that's like, so to me, it's Andrew Jackson because I'm Cherokee, but for Dakotas, it's like, you know, President Lincoln. And, you know, if you talked to maybe the Ponca tribe, right, it might be, you know, the President Grant's role in signing a treaty with the Lakota where President Grant signed away their lands in Nebraska, just gave them away to another tribe, and then they were forcibly removed on a trail of tears to Oklahoma um, without their consent. So, I mean, every tribe has a story where at some point in time, a president of the United States betrayed them. And and it's been pretty much every president. <laughs> um, you know, Nixon actually did some really good things. I think a lot of people don't think like, oh, you know, they'd be surprised maybe. But yes, actually, President Nixon did some wonderful things. And uh, a really brilliant Native journalist out there, Mark Trahant, has written some excellent articles on President Nixon's leg- legacy. I would also say President Clinton wasn't horrible on Indian affairs. He wasn't the best, but he also wasn't the worst. President Obama has probably, hands down, been the best we've ever had in the history of the United States. And I think we're all hoping that President Biden will give President Obama a run for his money in that category. Yeah, I'm surprised to hear you say it about Obama. I mean, given that Standing Rock happened on, under his watch. So what what did Obama do that makes you say that he's been he was kind of the best uh advocate for for native peoples well you know let me be clear i did work on uh the standing rock case i um did i was privileged to work behind the scenes with chairman archambault and others at standing rock and i also did one of the amicus briefs in the federal district court case before judge boseberg on behalf of my client the national indigenous women's resource center very very involved in the case was very disappointed um when presidential uh when President Obama's administration and specific, specifically the Army Corps of Engineers granted the easement and issued a finding of, of um, you know, no significant impact, basically saying there's nothing to see here and the pipeline can go through in um, July of 2016. That was very disappointing. 
And um, yeah, you know, it, it was it was Obama's administration that greenlighted that pipeline, and the the Standing Rock tribe had to sue them and and lost their motion for injunction injunctive relief in August of 2016. And then, you know, so it was a long road. I mean, here we are in 2020 and Standing Rock just won, right? And everyone is celebrating this massive victory as they should. But had Obama's administration simply applied the law at that time, um, you know, we, we could have avoided this and avoided this, not just the cost, but like uh, financially of all the litigation and everything, but like also um, what the the water protectors sacrificed. I mean, they they sacrificed their health and their time and their families and and their welfare to be out there on the line to to fight for this. And also, you know, think about what the destruction happened because um, because this pipeline was allowed to go forward and, and an injunctive relief wasn't initially issued. You know, Dakota Access went out there and literally bulldozed graves and sacred sites that the Standing Rock tribes tribal historic preservation officer had put into evidence in the federal district court on Friday before Labor Day in 2016. They filed their affidavit on that Friday, Saturday morning at 6 a.m. Dakota Access was out there with bulldozers destroying grave sites so that the tribe couldn't say, because under the federal law, if there are grave sites there, you can't put a permit through it. So they knew if they destroy those graves, then then there they go. They can do it. So it's a beautiful victory today. But yeah, you know, and I think, you know, you have to also understand there were a lot of people in the Obama administration working really hard to to fight for the, the for Standing Rock and, standing, and and what Standing Rock stood for in that case. Um, and just because President Obama was the president doesn't mean he controls explicit power over every single member of a federal agency at all times. Right. So. Some of that was having to get um, the Army Corps of Engineers, quite honestly, on on board and get them in the right place. And and Obama did, right? And Obama's administration in December of 2016 announced where we didn't, you know, the, the the easement or the you know the pipeline permit we granted is is not effective. It's null. It's void. We are doing a full environmental impact statement, and that was victory. And it was, you know, just a few days after President Trump got into office that he reversed that and issued an executive order requiring the pipeline to go through. So it's com- it's complex, right? It's I mean, and that's the point. I mean, you know, um, that's the point about all of this. It's not nothing's it's not a simple narrative of, well, there was one bad president. His name was Andrew Jackson. And, if, you know, and that's that was the president that was bad to Indians. But you know, that, that was the one it's like, well, no, actually it's, <laughs> you want, you want to know what Thomas Jefferson did? <laughs> he sent Lewis and Clark out to, you know, hundreds of tribal nations to tell them that they were, they were now the possession of the United States, that they were not legitimate sovereigns anymore. And they were just like colonial, you know, beings under the throne of the United States. I mean, it was in, and did it in a very patronizing colonial imperialistic way. So, you know, you won't be surprised to hear that that's not how I learned that story when I was in elementary school in Tacoma, right. Washington. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then could you talk a little bit about this recent Supreme Court decision and kind of what are the implications of it? I mean, it's I've seen some some headlines that have said, you know, half of 
Oklahoma is is now officially an, an Indian reservation, including all of Tulsa. Is that is that accurate? Is that an oversimplification? Uh, well, of, of the it situation? is a little bit of an oversimplification. I mean, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that this case is about Creek Nation and Creek Nation alone. Uh, the majority opinion does not discuss the other five tribes or their treaties or the status of their reservations. Now, mm. you know, attorneys for those tribes may well. Um, use this case to argue that their reservations haven't been disestablished. And I don't know of anything that Congress has ever done to disestablish Cherokee Nation's reservation or Seminole's reservation or Chickasaw's. Or, but the point is, is like we we got to be clear on what the Supreme Court did and did not do here, right? right? And what the Supreme Court did do is say, Oklahoma, you're wrong. We're, we're not going to, as a court, judicially disestablish Creek Nation's reservation just because you want it disestablished. We've said for the last hundred years, look at all of our precedents from Celestine in 1909 to, to Solemn just a few decades ago to Nebraska v. Parker, also in 2016. They all state the same thing. Once a treaty creates a reservation with it for a tribal nation, only Congress can disestablish that reservation. And Congress has to say it. They have to say the reservation is disestablished. They can't imply it. They can't say, you know, we hope someday the reservation won't exist anymore in some legislative speech on the floor. They have got to pass a law disestablishing it or it still exists. And that's what Gorsuch said. And that's, you know, been the law. And it's just nice to see the law actually applied. So what does that mean? It means Creek Na- It means what, you know, Gorsuch said, Creek Nation's reservation has never been disestablished. Now, in practical effect, it's not affecting anyone's land ownership, individual owners, you know, White guys who live in Tulsa are not losing their homes. I mean, if they want to sell them, they can. But certainly, you know, Creek Nation is not going to have anything to do with that or say about that. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's pretty much just maintenance of status quo. And a lot of people have a lot of questions about, well, you know, does Oklahoma not have any jurisdiction? Oh, you know, the Supreme Court and Congress have given states a lot of jurisdiction on reservations. I mean, you grew up in Tacoma. So I'm sure you know that the Puyallup tribe is right there, Mm -hmm. right? Does the state of Washington just have zero jurisdiction there? No, right? Um, that's not the case. There's there's overlapping jurisdiction in a lot of instances, and there are certain distinctions. So, for instance, if you're on a reservation and an Indian commits a crime, the tribal nation has criminal jurisdiction and the feds. If a non-Indian commits the crime, this is a, a, a vast simplification, but it's going to capture the majority of cases. If a non-Indian commits the crime, then the state has jurisdiction. And so, you know, uh, for very unfortunate reasons, Native Americans make up a small percentage of the population in Oklahoma, although originally we were 100 percent of the population. But today we're a very small percent. So the vast majority of crimes committed on Creek Nation's reservation are going to remain solidly under the criminal jurisdiction of Oklahoma. And as for civil jurisdiction, you know, the Supreme Court in 1981 said that the civil jurisdiction of tribes over non-Indians is very limited. So, you know, I'm an advocate for tribal nations. I'm always fighting for the recognition of tribes' civil jurisdiction over non-Indians, and I believe in it. And I believe in the legitimacy of our tribal governments. And I know that our tribal governments are just as, if not more capable than state and federal governments when it comes to implementing civil regulatory laws and federal, I'm sorry, not federal, (laughs) uh, tribal criminal laws that protect the health, safety, and welfare of anyone on our lands, regardless of their citizenship in a state or a tribal nation. But the real point here is that the law is pretty prohibitive on what kinds of civil jurisdiction tribes can exercise over non-Indians, and people just need to stop freaking out. I mean, I know that there's been a lot of misrepresentations in the media, but like, that's not the law. So 
Uh, I just hope people will kind of take like take a moment to calm down and educate themselves or, you know, ask to speak to an attorney who, who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> um, so there, there's been a lot of overreaction. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 Especially, I imagine, from kind of white people in Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, my God, is the tribe going to take my home? I'm like, no. You're like, unfortunately not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you know, and it's just such an ir- ironic question considering the town of Tulsa itself was all allotted to Creek Nation citizens and, and Creek freedmen um, after the allotment and after the Curtis Act. And the vast majority of it through fraud, deception, corruption uh, was stolen. And um, that's why the folks who are the richest non-Native folks in Tulsa are the richest non some of the richest non-Native folks in the United States today, the oil money, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, they stole Creek lands. And now the irony is, um, you know, the the direct descendants of those who stole the land from us are worried, I guess, that we're going to steal it back. And there's just not any plans or intention to do that. But it just, I think, shows you how um, si- the silencing of our collective history has created a massively dysfunctional guilt complex in right. contemporary non-Native Americans. And that that needs to be dealt with. And I actually think that's something theater can help with. You said goat complex? Guilt complex. Oh, guilt complex. I yeah, thought you meant no. like sort of scapegoat or something. Oh, yeah, guilt no. complex. Yeah, guilt yeah, complex. No. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, what, so what has changed? I mean, it seems like you're, what you're saying is not, not much. Well, not, no, not much, except that the Supreme Court applied the law. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, I mean, yeah, there's nothing to see here because the Supreme Court said, yeah, nothing's changed. The reservation still exists. It hasn't been disestablished. Go home. You know? Okay. Um, stop whining, Oklahoma. Like, y- you you know, if you want to ask Congress to disestablish it, go for it. But then Congress is going to have to show its face to the world and say, hey, we're, you know, you know what everyone was trying to do in Congress 100 years ago? And we didn't quite succeed on. Remember that colonial era where we wanted to just completely obliterate all tribal nations because we said publicly they were racially inferior savages? Oklahoma wants us to do that now in 2020. Everyone cool with that? And I'm hopeful that the American public would be like, no, we're not going to be okay with some 18th century, 19th century notion of let's eliminate this tribal nation because the state wants that land and wants that authority. Um, that's horrible. So I'm hopefully yeah. that's, you know, not how people will behave if Oklahoma tries to seek that, um, which I'm, you know, wouldn't be surprised if they did. Right. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, I feel like I've lost all capacity to be surprised about anything the federal government yeah. does these days. Yeah. Yeah. And you've, you've spoken a lot about this idea of, you know, the colonial mindset that the United States mm-hmm. and many people in the United States have towards native peoples. Uh, I, I've heard the the phrase de, or the word decolonize kind mm-hmm. of thrown around a lot in kind of leftist and activist uh, spaces in recent years. Is that a word that that has meaning to you? And if so, what what does that word mean to you? Or is um, that or is it too too broad, too vague? Yeah, I mean, it gets used a lot. I mean, I use it, but it's. I mean, I think it's also like the the term of the day right now, and I think people yeah. throw it out all the time. You know, so it's it's so overused that. I think it's lost a little bit of its specificity, but it's true. I mean, the United States is a colonial government. So, you know, there, there's truth to that. Colonizing government. Yeah. And it seems like when people use that term, you know, they have people have in mind a huge range of possible things that could entail from uh, more representation of native writers in school curriculums to, you know, white people moving back to Europe or something. You know, it seems like there's not, not a not a very definite agreement about what that term means at this point. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it just depends on the context in which it's being used. Um, and you talked a bit about, uh, you know, kind of how theater can be useful in, in these conversations. And, and I am very interested in this idea because, you know, I'm a playwright as well. And when I think of like a lawyer, I think of that as being like a very, you know, uh, a very real job, <laughs> like a very important, you know, mm-hmm. professional uh, job that, that compared to uh, a playwright, uh, you know, feels very like important, capital I important. Um, and yet you've, you've devoted a lot of your energy towards both your playwriting and your, uh, work as an, as an advocate in the legal sphere. So to you, I mean, how do these two things work together? Do you feel like they're kind of two sides of the same coin? I mean, you mentioned the kind of inherent theatricality of the courtroom, but, but how do you feel like, uh, you know, theater is, is a a tool for you in pursuing these kind of political goals? It was very much a tool. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, for instance, just look at, for instance, Justice Ginsburg's decision in Straight, where she authored a decision that was very anti-tribal sovereignty uh, in a very harmful way. She went and saw sovereignty at arena stage and wrote me the nicest note afterwards about what the play meant to her. And now look at her signing on to Justice Gorsuch's opinion in McGirt. Now, you know, mm. I don't, I'm not saying that my play changed her mind on tribal sovereignty, but, you know, when you're living in a country where law schools do not teach Indian law or the reality of treaties and what they mean and how they're written about in the, in the Constitution, which says that the Supreme Law of the Land, when that is erased from the textbooks in law schools, and when until just recently with Justice Gorsuch. Um, Justice Gorsuch's hiring of a native clerk, no Supreme Court justice had ever hired a single native clerk in the history of the United States. When you think about all of this, a play may be the only opportunity for a Supreme Court justice to learn something, actually, about tribal sovereignty, wow. right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think that that's where art can really achieve things that right where right now we're just we're still being silenced and excluded from things like law school curricula for the most part, right? Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's exceptions like the law school program at ASU, right? But, you know, Yale doesn't have an Indian law program. Every now and then they offer an Indian law course, not by hiring a native law professor, but by hiring a non-native law professor to teach adjunct. And, you know, um, other law schools do the same, but, you know, it, it just, it, it creates an absence of understanding, I think. Yeah. I love that what you just said, because I feel like so often we, when we think of the notion of theater as a form of education, what we're imagining is, you know, school trips of little kids going to see a play at, at a children's theater. Uh, but what you're actually saying is that theater can be a form of education to kind of fill in the gaps that even a Supreme Court justice might not be aware of. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Mary Catherine Nagel, so, thanks so much for coming on the, the program. This has been such a fascinating and, and eye-opening discussion for me, and I really enjoyed uh, reading your play. Thank you, and thank you for reading it and wanting to talk about it. 